welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that looks at the behind-the-scenes workings of the films you love to love and hate. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week we are going to be uh, looking at uh, some interesting things that have been said out there uh, with some behind-the-scenes work and, and directors and some of their projects that are upcoming. But of course, if you want to reach out to us, you can go to thenerdparty.com slash contact, look up uh, Great Shot Kid. You can go over to Join Nerd Party on Twitter, hashtag Great Shot Kid, and let us know that you're listening. You can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenerdparty. Again, use the hashtag Great Shot Kid and over on Instagram at thenerdparty. So uh, to kick things off, actually, we this week it, it, we've looked at the works of or at least a work of Brian De Palma in the past, a, a very, I guess, successful but sometimes contentious director out there. And apparently uh, Mr. De Palma had a quote uh, in a French magazine about uh, Steven Soderbergh. Yes, uh, this was, well, posted on Twitter. It's a translation into English. Uh, posted by uh, Nick Newman. And he tweets... This is a quote from Brian De Palma. Steven Soderbergh, a visual director? Are you kidding? Give me an example of a great visually memorable scene at Soderbergh or a silent sequence based on the staging. I saw an episode of The Nick, and there is nothing that really blushed me visually in. Obviously, the translation is whatever. But yeah. you get the general idea. Yeah. Brian De Palma's insane. Uh, you know, okay, look, you, everybody knows you're the Soderbergh scholar. Uh, we all know that. And I, I've been coming around very slowly on Mr. Soderbergh. I, I just recently finally saw Out of Sight and uh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was great. Um, but uh, to for De Palma to make that sort of comment is nuts. I mean, if anything, like Soderbergh's visual style is instantly recognizable i could sit down and turn something on and never seen it before and say oh this looks like steven soderbergh like for him to say there's nothing visually distinctive that's that is crazy what what would motivate a director to say that about another director's work that's, isn't that like the ultimate insult i guess so you know and it's also like when you think about i mean i don't know more than than almost any other filmmaker like you hear soderbergh talk about his process and everything and it's so extremely well thought out his visual style yeah you know what no matter what it is he's doing whether he's you know shooting a movie with an iphone like unsane or whatever you know or the nick which is a television show which he was doing at like a breakneck speed it's all got you know a very, very, not just distinct visual style, but well thought out visual style. I mean, I th I think he's the guy who said that he can tell by watching, like after the first three shots, I think of of a movie, he can tell whether or not the director knows what they're doing visually, which I think is a really interesting sort of game to play. But, I mean, you just, like, read his blog where he's talking about, you know, film theory and everything like that, whether he's talking about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, 
and the cutting patterns or whether he's talking about, you know, the, the black and white, you know, version of Raiders of the Lost Ark that he, he put together with nothing but music from the social network as a way of sort of um, pinpointing the w- what makes the compositions and the editing in that movie work so well or whether he's, you know, talking about 2001 or, or anything, you know, anything really. You know, the <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, 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 I honestly, I mean, the thing is, that this has got to be, I'm really hoping to hear something from De Palma sort of clarifying that because first and foremost, you know, anybody who has read a ton of behind the scenes stuff about Star Wars knows to, uh, you know, the, De Palma was notoriously harsh with Lucas uh, when he viewed like the first rough cut of Star Wars and stuff like that. But like, uh, like De Palma is a director where I think that's very much, you know, watch out the stones you're throwing in glass houses there because it's not as much as I love. And I have a, a big soft spot for like Carlito's way. There's nothing in that where I watch that and go, only De Palma could have done that shot. Or, oh, wow. Like, it's just a it's a good movie that's well put together and well written. I don't sit there and say, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, maybe earlier De Palma, you could say there's a distinct, a really distinctive style there. But I just don't, I don't get the motivation of one director throwing shade at another, especially in a public forum. That just doesn't make any sense. I mean, he's got, you know, those like split diopter shots and everything, which, you know, sometimes scream, yes, this is De Palma. But, you know, is it any more sort of like enlightened, you know, or, or um, I don't know what, what, what word you would use to describe it. But what does it add to the movie, which is any more or less than what Soderbergh brings to the table? You know, you, you know what I think it is? Because I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm thinking about it. If you if you held the two visual styles of these directors up, I could see somebody like De Palma looking at uh, something Soderbergh does and not getting where the dynamism is in it. Soderbergh doesn't use in the ones that I've seen that he's done. He doesn't use anything f- what I would call flashy. There's not you know, to to point out what you're talking about with like the, the you know the diopter shot or something like that. There's nothing that is a, oh, look what I can do moment about it. It really is about he knows how to get that camera, you know, because, for instance, I'm thinking about out of sight, right? And the, I, I think I said this to you, the, the thing, the word that always pops to my mind, and not just because of the music that he uses, but the, the if you even took the music out of a, a movie that Soderbergh has done, you would think the word jazz, the way things are put together, there's a very natural flow, but it's not that there's any particularly showy moment that happens. It's just a matter of knowing where, like, you know, because there's the, there's the shot of Clooney leaving the bank that he robs in the very beginning. And as he's walking by, he pulls the trick of talking to the guy who's sitting at the desk to make the 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 girl at the counter think that he's talking to his partner. You know, the guy has no idea who he is. And the way that the camera is set up, it doesn't look terribly dynamic, but if you look at it, you can see it's a little bit 
off of where you would expect a camera setup to be. It's like a little off to the left and therefore conveys this sort of, uh, you know, off-kilter moment for the guy sitting at the desk that Clooney talks to. The camera doesn't fix on Clooney. The camera doesn't do anything like that. It's just there. And it's about just conveying that sort of looser moment, uh, so to speak. Whereas I guess De Palma is more about the elaborate setup, maybe. Um, you know, and, and pulling off... Because the thing is, we looked at that movie Sisters of his, and there was, you know, the the split-screen moments were really interesting that they pulled mm-hmm. off with that. But, you know, uh, I don't know. And And Soderbergh does that, too, at times, you know, when he's getting a bit more goofy or whatever you know he does that in like the oceans movies i just watched all the oceans movies uh this week and um you know i mean th- those are uh, in a lot of ways a lot different from the the movies that he sometimes makes on a, like a smaller scale you know i remember him talking about how like he was getting ready to make oceans 11 and he had never made a movie like that before so he started studying the masters in that field like sp- Spielberg and John McTiernan and you know I mean when you see like I remember hearing that and thinking like oh it's gonna look like Die Hard you know and then you see the actual finished product and it's like it does have that glossiness but through that Soderbergh lens so to speak like it's still feels like it's you know natural lighting and it's really grainy and handheld and everything but you know, shot for two hundred million dollars or whatever. There's something about that that contrast which I really like. But then you look at something like Solaris, which is like the glossiest, cleanest movie you've ever seen. Obviously, very heavily influenced by two thousand and one. And I mean, you just see that guy's range, you know. But I mean, it, it's true. I mean, he said this on numerous occasions that you know. His style is very much about being unobtrusive to the actors and to the environment. That's why he's shooting on an iPhone, not because he thinks it looks great, not because it's cheap, but because it's super-duper small and allows him to put the camera pretty much anywhere he wants and the actors almost won't notice, you know? Yeah. And... yeah. You know, that's that's sort of what he's been, I think, striving for his entire career. And, you know, I mean, but then you turn around and you look at something like The Nick, which, you know, De, De Palma brings up in this quote. And it's like, God, I don't know. Have you seen The Nick at all? I haven't because that's on a pay channel and we all know how I feel about those. Yeah. It's so, so, so good. You know, it's kind of a throwback to older Soderbergh, you know, towards the end of his career you know he started getting away from the handheld stuff and started doing things you know with these locked down you know tableau shots or whatever and you know with with the nick it's got that immediacy that rush that you see in things like traffic and everything but still you know shot with that red camera which is just absolutely gorgeous looking I mean, it's 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 like the highest you know production value you'll see, but you know, in in an hour long television show, and it's it's a, it's a knockout. I mean, it's it's one of the the best shows. I mean, ever you know, let alone in recent years. 
see, it's it's interesting though because uh, you know as we're sitting here talking about about Soderbergh, one of the things that I have not gone back, and I feel almost now that I've gone on a little bit of a journey. I think there's more of his that I should watch first. But I remember years and years ago, and I'm sure I've shared this with you before. Like I, I saw traffic. I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like it like at all. I, I and I don't know what it was that graded me because I look at his other stuff and I'm like, I dig this. I dig this. I dig this. I don't know. Was I just in a bad mood that day or something like that? But like, I, I I'm very curious after I you know get an even better feel for him. Uh, what I'll think of Traffic when I go back and watch it. The only thing I really remember positively from Traffic was that I thought that, you know, naturally Benicio Del Toro was fantastic. But, I mean, you know, okay, is water wet too? Yes, it yeah. is. I, mean, I, I, love, I love everything about Traffic. I mean, definitely I was, you know, I was ready for that movie when it came out. You know, I had, well, I had seen Out of Sight and, and enjoyed it quite a bit, but then... When the Limey came out, I saw it late, uh, but it, it was like one of those things where it was playing downtown, and I kept on walking by the theater and seeing that poster, which is you know one of the best posters I've ever seen, and thinking, like, that looks really cool. I don't know anything about that movie, but I should see it. And I went home, and I watched the trailer online, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It's like a, an art house action movie, you know, from the director of Out of Sight, but you know, it looks like out of sight, but with, with that such a smaller budget. And then, you know, I saw it and I, and I loved it. And then out of or Aaron Brockovich came out just a couple months later. And, you know, that was so different and yet, you know, also great. And I just really loved the idea that this guy could like pretty much do anything at any scale and just bounce back and forth. And traffic really seemed like this was going to be the culmination of everything that he had done up to that point. And in a lot of ways it was, and it just kind of hit all the right buttons for me, like in terms of the way that it was shot and especially the way that it was edited. And it just really, really spoke to me at the time because that was sort of like the way that I would have made a movie if I were making movies at that point in time, you know? You know, it, th- this is interesting, this conversation, because uh, I'm sitting here. Last week, you you played uh, armchair psychiatrist with me. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to turn it back around on you, but I actually have a, a question. I don't know. If, is, there something about, is, is there something about where somebody's favorite director informs us about how that director influenced what they like, or did they gravitate toward that director because of the nature of what they liked. Like, it's sort of a chicken and egg sort of thing, but, like, Mm -hmm. were you always predisposed, and then when you found Soderbergh, it went along with your sort of worldview and wishes into blah, 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 and that's why you latched onto him? Or is it something where you saw the right Soderbergh movie at the right time, and it reformulated what you want out of a film and so it's sort of like changed your tastes and that's why he's always going to be sort of at the top for you i don't know i i, I was always like a, a fan of like that that handheld sort of like pseudo documentary style i mean like going back to like homicide life on the street you know the tv oh show. yeah oh yeah and and like that was you know so so to see that like in a movie you know which that's what traffic is for sure i mean 
every single shot in that movie, I think, is handheld. You know, with, with the exception of one, which is where, like, the helicopter is landing or something like that. You know, and, and it's all, like, done as if someone was standing there with a camera, you know? Uh, and, and, I mean, even, like, down to the sound mix, where they they got, like, halfway through mixing the movie, you know, in 5.1 surround sound, and then the mixer was like, you know, if this is supposed to be sort of like a documentary style, really, it should just be mono. And then they folded it down the entire movie into mono aside from the music. You know, it's a mono movie just because that goes along with like the visual style. That's and crazy. It's, it is, but huh. it's awesome. And, you know, I mean, just like that sort of way of thinking right and and the fact that he you know as someone who is a fan of you know a bunch of types of movies and this guy was making all of those right but still never losing his voice i mean that i think is what kind of really spoke to me but also the idea that you could really kind of like mainline his work because he was releasing something every six months you know and yeah. it just, it was like all those things together, I think, just sort of were like the perfect storm for me. So that when traffic came out, like, I was really sort of like on board the Soderbergh train and, and uh, yeah. you know, just full speed ahead, you know, and, and it didn't disappoint at all. You know, it's, it, I don't know, I, I almost, I you know, th- there's always that, that question, too, of uh Will we see a breakthrough? Because you know we we talked about how in the '90s there's this you know explosion of original directors and everything like that. Do you think that things have just gotten too too diluted now? Like the tools are out there for everybody. And oh, who was it? it was uh, I, I forget the name of the producer, but in Side by Side, um, he said to Keanu Reeves, "You know we've lost the tastemakers. We've lost the gateway, and so things are just you know it's just." There's too much everywhere, and that's why everything, you know, the quality has diluted. Do you, who, I mean, basically all of that, just like a really roundabout way, I guess, just to ask, like, do you see an environment where somebody like a Soderbergh can come up again, you know, can, and, and carve like an actual career out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think Soderbergh would be the first person to say, you know, like, it's better now than it was before because, everybody has all the tools at their disposal, you know? Mm. I mean, right now I'm holding the camera that Soderbergh used to shoot his last movie, you know, in my hand. And, you know, it was in my pocket when I went to go see that movie, you know, on the big screen in 4K. And I I just, you know, he's, he's always sort of been about that, always been about, like, making the technology accessible to everyone and to the point that he made, you know, full frontal as a way of kind of like saying like, this is what I would have made if I were getting started today. This would have been my first feature because I can shoot something on, you know, a Canon XL one and, you know, it'll look good enough to put up there on the screen, you you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's a good thing. You know, yeah, there, there might be a lot of extra crap to wade through, but at the same time, a lot more people are getting a lot more opportunities, and there's a much greater chance of finding 
the next Soderbergh because, you know, and, and I mean, and, and you look at like the people who he's supporting, you know, as filmmakers, you know, it's usually pretty obscure. Like you look at like the girlfriend experience and how he, you know, basically handpicked the two people to create and, and direct every episode of that show. And it's Amy Seamitz and Lodge Kerrigan who are both, you know, super indie directors, you know? And I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's okay. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, no, I I don't think it's a bad thing by any stretch. But I think that I I don't know. I guess I'm just one of those. You know, I have the the gloomier, I guess, more pessimistic view of of it from the career standpoint, right? Like anybody can put something up on YouTube and and stuff like that. But like Soderbergh has always. I mean, he was the first one to release a film. Uh, simultaneously in the theaters and on demand at the same time, wasn't he? He was one of the first, yeah. Why did I think he was the first? Um, Just because he was the first that garnered headlines? Yeah, it could have been. I mean, it was a big deal at the time, but okay. I, I don't necessarily know that it was the first. Yeah. You know I, you know what? Actually, that triggers a memory. I, I, uh, I remember working very late at night uh, because we had a launch overnight for a site, and sitting there and saying, I got to turn something on to stay awake. You know, I, it's like Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I'm like putting instant coffee into Coca-Cola. It's like, got to stay awake, got to publish the thing. And I, I remember there was a channel. I don't know if it still exists or not. And for some reason, I want to say um, Mark Cuban was like an owner in it. Fearnet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that was where they released, was it Land of the... It wasn't Land of the Dead. It was... Uh, Oh gosh, I can't remember that, but it, it was the one where they were keeping the dead in like these pens, and the movie was so obviously shot for like nothing. And the guy who played uh, Wyndham Earl was the lead. Um, oh, but it was the something of the dead, of course. Diary you know, of the Dead, or no, not Diary was it of the Romero dead. or not. I'm pretty sure it was Romero, and yeah. it might have been Living with the Dead, or or it's it, it was some title like that because Diary of the Dead I remember watching and falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, very early into that film, <laughs> like I, I was grateful that it was a rental because if I'd fallen asleep in the theater, I would have felt very uh, cross with myself. But I actually uh, fell asleep watching Diary of the Dead. Um, but it was the one before that, and I, I just remember seeing it because, and I remember being blown away because Fearnet was sitting there and they were saying like, "This movie's not even in theaters, and you can watch it for free here on this channel." I was like, oh, yeah. cool. This is great. This is the future is now. And, uh, you know, this is a few years ago uh, before Netflix was really doing original programming and stuff like that. Um, yeah, they did it for, for the Soderbergh movies. And it was supposed to be like six of them or something like that. The idea was they were going to like go across the country and f- find, you know, like the real America or whatever, you know, shoot in these like small towns with local people you know who are not professional actors and tell these stories uh and they only did two of them essentially before they stopped but um they would release them simultaneously in theaters on dvd and on this channel hdnet and i remember like we didn't get the channel here in Chicago or whatever, uh, but we, you know, had a, a landmark theater, which is Mark Cuban's theater company, you know, and he, they they were releasing it, but 
for some reason, like the uh, like a couple days before, I went to the Borders down the street from where I worked, and they had a copy of uh, this was Bubble, the first one, um, sitting on the shelf, like a couple days before it was supposed to be released. So I'm like, oh, yoink, you know, <laughs> let me yeah. grab this and take it home and watch it, you know, now. And I had at the time like a video projector set up in my living room. So, you know, watching movies on the big screen was something that I could do, you know, at my house. And it would probably be a better experience than watching it at this particular theater, which w it was playing at, which usually had some pretty terrible projection quality. So... And it would have been on 35 millimeter film, which didn't seem to make any sense since the whole thing was shot digitally and all that right. stuff. So, yeah, I, I just bought the DVD and watched it and fell in love instantly. Have you ever seen Bubble? I have not. I have not. But all, all you talking about the the presentation stuff, it's, uh, uh, you know, I loved Solo, but the first time I watched it uh you know, I told you I was in uh, Theater 3 at uh, AMC Disney Springs where the two of us saw uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And if you recall, that theater was not their best theater. It was a small... It was that, well, you know, the, the screen was basically like... I, I remember sitting there and I, I loved the movie, but I remember in the back of my mind, I... I I'm going to like this better at home visually. <laughs> like I was just, I was just like, I know I'm going to get, because I was actually sitting in a, in a row where like the exit light was too bright yeah. and everything. But then I just, uh, just saw it again in, uh, in Dolby cinema. I mean, it was like what it, it was the same sort of magic of seeing movies when I was a kid again, where it was like, this is a special event. This feels like something different and special worth watching yeah. and paying the money to go see. Um, yeah, but and all that to say, just in response to that, I haven't seen Bubble. So. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been because they just built that one in Disney Springs, and they, they I think they went all out with that one. Don't they have like the video hallway or whatever? They do. It's pretty great. It's but did they great. just have like people? Because I know like the original plan was to have like basically landscapes or whatever for the movie that you were watching so it was like you were entering that world which seems like the perfect thing to do with solo but then like i saw a picture of it and it was just like they're standing there uh it it rotates through people and you can see some backgrounds and stuff like that and it plays the cool music from the uh the trailer and everything and it's just it's like uh beauty shots of like people looking at the camera like hey welcome mm -hmm. to the movie and it, i you know it was pretty cool like everybody that was walking by it would stop and like take pictures or record it or something like that because i thought mm -hmm. it was just so neat um, yeah, uh, you know, that out. yeah. I, I, and the thing is that 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 wall screen uh, was better than the theater I originally saw Solo in. So <laughs> go figure. Um, I well, guess. that's the thing they're talking about now is these LED screens, like literally like television screens. Yeah, that doesn't seem right for mm -hmm. some reason. That just doesn't seem. I mean, it's literally just watching television then. Yeah. And granted, film doesn't have some sort of like magic transference, but I, you know, at the same time, I don't know. It just seems like a, a step away from what makes things special. Another step away from it. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
What are you going to do? Technology, it marches on, I guess, or something. Oh, I know. I know, I know. And I and I did check. Uh, the one I saw on Fearnet was Survival of the Dead, okay. which is the one after Diary of the Dead. Okay. All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Soderbergh, like, he's, a, I, 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 there's, like, some sort of, like, infamous press conference or something that was done at some film festival where it was, like, a bunch of directors talking about you know this whole thing and day and date you know video versus you know movie theaters or whatever and apparently you know Soderbergh was up there basically saying like for a movie like Bubble or The Girlfriend Experience I don't really care if people see it in the theater it's not going to add a whole lot or whatever if it's easier for them to watch it at home then that's fine with me and M. Night Shyamalan was on the panel as well, and he was like, you know, you're insane, you know, theaters are the way to go, that's the only place to watch movies, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I guess the two of them kind of went at it in, at this panel. But um, I, I'm with Shyamalan on this oh. one, to be honest, but, you know, what can you do? I just spent basically the entire weekend watching Stanley Kubrick movies on the big screen um, because, hey, you know, why not, right? I'm kind of jealous because I have never seen a Kubrick movie on the big screen. I've it, only ever seen them at home. Yeah. I saw I saw 2001 a couple weeks ago in 70 millimeter. I, I just I'm so mad because there's no plans to bring it to my area and I keep checking the site. No plans at this time. Screw you guys. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. It's funny because like a year ago, one of the theaters in the city commissioned the, the production of a new print, a new 70 millimeter print of 2001 that they could own and keep forever, right? And show yeah. whenever they wanted. And... They showed it last year, and yeah, it looked great. You know, it was brand new print. Although the whole time I was thinking, especially, you know, now that I've been introduced to, you know, laser projection and everything, like what they use with the Dolby Cinema, I'm like, you know, these these black levels aren't very good. You know, everything just kind of mushes together when it gets to a certain, you know, level of gray. But um, I'm like, yeah, it looks great. You know, I mean, it's like a pristine print. And then they do this whole thing, this whole like, oh, re-release for the 50th anniversary, the unrestored, you know, because it's, you know, Christopher Nolan, even though, what does that mean, unrestored? It's a little, I, I don't know. Oh, well, I, th I, think, I think that's just because people have gotten used to the idea of the special edition yeah. version being re-released. And yeah. so that I think that it, I actually uh, agree with their choice to basically call out we didn't make any changes. There's like, a know, difference it, between not know. making changes and restoring a movie, though, you know? I mean, there's a difference between a restoration uh, to you, and a revision. To you and me. To you and me, there is. Okay. To you and me, there is. I would argue that the uh, th that there is a, uh, a, a disconnect uh, in the general public where... It, I, I do. I, I think that we... Sometimes, not just you and me, but like, you know, the, the people that travel in our circles and everything, we get a little bit, of, we get some blinders on sometimes about stuff. Like, you know, even all the online stuff right now about how, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek fans are fighting about blah, 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 blah. 
I could mention that to my wife or any of my neighbors, and they'd look at me and they'd say, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. And if I say 2001 is coming back to movie theaters, the first question out of their mouths is, did they change anything? Mm -hmm. So if I say they have an unrestored, that's immediately going to say to people, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and they could they could restore the hell out of the print, but they got to have a word that lets the average film film goer know we didn't touch it. We didn't cut anything. We didn't splice anything. We didn't. I mean, and the thing is, that's a shame because I I actually think how far it's come, uh, because I remember when Vertigo, when uh, Scorsese sat on that restoration, they made a big deal about the fact that they were like, oh, well, we restored this and we. We color corrected this and we went back to the notes and we remixed this scene, you know, and probably some of the sort of the same things happened with this. But I, I don't know. It's all, it's like a minefield now. I don't I don't think that there's that much that happened with it. I think it's more like, you know, it's not as purely unrestored. You know, I think they picked and chose sort certain elements to use in, in order to, you know, get it to where it is and you you know and like i wasn't you know i i went back to see it just because i wanted to see like okay you know the this theater was just bought this print you know now second year that they have it they're gonna just not show it they're gonna show this other print which is brought in which is supposedly better and i'm looking at it and i'm like this really isn't any better and there is some actual like film damage on there like that was on like the negative where i'm like I don't remember seeing that on the version that I saw last year. It's quite possible that the version we saw last year was actually better, but I'm I'm curious about that, you know, for sure. I don't know. I you know that that whole thing too turns into that whole fetish of it's like, you know, you know, I hate to keep going back to this but like LPs where people mm-hmm. are like, "Oh, well you hear I you know, yeah, okay, it's got a more dynamic range of sound, but I also hear like pops and hiss and stuff you know if the trade-off is that i'm getting uh, better sound you know like with less background static yeah i think most of us would make the trade-off and you know instead of an unrestored if they were like well we fixed a few things that got screwed up in the original print it'd be like yeah okay that's cool it's not even that it could be just like well we chose to use you know this negative over here you know, which may not be the first generation, but it was made before the first generation was damaged. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of like that. And but whatever. I mean, like, th- that's the thing about this. And this kind of goes back to Soderbergh, where Soderbergh's like you listen to some of the stuff that, you know, Stanley Kubrick said when he was alive about, you know, photographing movies and the types of experiments that he was trying on things like Barry Lyndon with, you know, shooting with candlelight and, you know, the idea that he was using these film stocks for, you know, certain reasons because the image was super stable and wouldn't, you know, jump or weave or anything like that. You know, Soderbergh's like, I'm fairly certain that if Kubrick were alive today, he would shoot digital instead of film. Because yeah. digital can do all the things that he tried to do with film, you know, which no one else could do with film. So, and, you know, you, you hear, you know, like, and, and this is why they were showing all these, uh, you know, Kubrick movies is because there's this new documentary out called Film Worker about this guy, Leon, uh, 
his like his like right hand man. Yeah, right? Leon Vitali, yeah. or is it Leo Vitali? I forget. Anyway, yeah, he's his right hand man, and he he like I remember reading an interview with him, you know, where they were like, oh, you know, did Stanley Kubrick see like digital projection? You know, what what did he think? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we saw some some scenes from two thousand and one uh, projected digitally, and he really loved it. He was really excited about the idea of digital projection. And it's like, you, you hear like all these things, and I'm like, I'm fairly certain, you know, that... that, that Well, doesn't, but, but doesn't that, that also get back to, you know, just, uh, you know, made reference to, you know, the, the people being a-holes to each other, you know, over Star Wars and Star Trek. Couldn't you therefore make the argument then, especially with like certain things having to do with film and stuff like that, that to an extent, we're all on like a scale, but some people gravitate more toward they're in love with what it meant as opposed to what it really is. Sure. And, and I mean, like Nolan, you know, falls on that spectrum. Nolan, who's heading up this project and everything is like, film is a magical thing for me. You know, when I watch a print, I, it, it makes me feel a certain way. And this is the way that I felt watching this print of 2001. And I want to feel that way again. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But is this really about like preserving the art? Or is it about preserving the feeling you had while you watched this art? Because Kubrick might come in and be like, you know what? I just saw Solo in Dolby Cinema, and that's the way that I want people to watch 2001. Honestly, that's the way I want to watch 2001. Yeah. I can't lie. I can't and they're, lie. And they're working on, well, like a 4K. Well, it's probably done at this point. It's, it's, it was supposed to come out. Um, I think it was supposed to be out now, like on, on vi- video, but then they held off because they were doing this 70 millimeter release. And so I Chris, mean, Christopher Nolan ruined that. Huh? Yeah, but but let's also remember, like the reason why. I mean, not not to get all cynical about this, but the reason why. I think honestly, the only reason why 2001 is getting a 70 millimeter release is because Warner Brothers, thanks to Christopher Nolan, is sort of leading the charge of keeping 70 millimeter alive and they have a certain incentive you know right to 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 do so because they want these theaters to keep all this equipment in place so that the next time you know uh, well christopher nolan has a movie come along that you'll he'll still be able to show it in 70 millimeter all admirable things but also you know, they're starving for content, you know, which is why, like, Fantastic Beasts, you know, or Kong Skull Island, which were shot digitally, are getting 70 millimeter releases, you know? And ironically, Kong Skull Island was a better movie than Fantastic Beasts. So go There's figure that one out. ironic about that. That's just yeah. plain old common sense. You know? <laughs> but, like, I saw Kong Skull Island in 70 millimeter. And. You know, the director was like, this is awesome. You know, like, this is awesome that this movie is getting released in 70 millimeter. But he also said, like, in the Q&A afterwards, like, to be honest, like, I didn't have... He's like, I'm not Christopher Nolan. I didn't have the time or the resources to put into making 
this 70 millimeter print look exactly the way that I want it to. And honestly, the colors are kind of off. And if, you know, you want my completely honest opinion of the whole situation, it looks better in digital than it does in 70 millimeters. So sorry, guys. But still, the idea, like he was, he was very much yeah. in favor of the idea of it being released in 70 millimeter, just because that's what he grew up with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. But like, you know, I'm sitting there watching all of these Kubrick movies in 35 millimeter and thinking like, these should be digital. And and there is definitely a thing. I mean, like, the same theater, they're going to be showing like Mad Max Fury Road in 35 millimeter, like later on this month. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, like... That's an odd choice. Why... You know, it's it's not gonna. I don't know why not just maybe show be, it digitally. It's maybe because Warner Brothers wants to atone for the fact that they screwed the pooch out of the two other Mad Max movies we could have gotten. I, I I doubt that's what it is. I think it's you know oh I, I discretion. Yeah, no, I I know that's not what it is. It's just I I just wanted to get a pot shot in there because ugh, that story about how 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 you can be so. Uh, it just makes me sad. Yeah. It makes me really, really sad. Hey, you never know. So. I mean, who who would have thought we would have gotten Mad Max Fury Road, you know, after X amount of years? So never Hell, say never. Ju- just after Beyond Thunderdome, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. So, Which, of course, everybody loves to love, but uh, let's be honest, folks. It's not it's, a good movie at all. No, it, it really isn't. Yeah. It really isn't. But, uh, you know... Mad Max Fury Road was a good idea, and another good idea is to uh, reach out to Mad Mike online. So, uh, Mike, where can uh, people get a hold of you online? You can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on my website, FilmDamagePod.com, where uh, we have a podcast called Film Damage, where we talk all about crazy projection things. They're fascinating projection things. Sometimes, Uh, yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. And we talk about other so. things, too. Like, we just talked about, like, the Sense8 finale and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, of course, you can find me online. I'm at Kessel Junkie on Twitter. You can find me uh, right here on the network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing. And you can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. So uh, until next week, the balcony is closed. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.